Hi everyone, Lucas Werner here. If you've been enjoying these conversations about art and culture, you might want to check out the newest releases from David's Werner Books, where we've published award-winning titles on Diane Arbus, Yayoi Kusama, and Carrie James Marshall, in addition to Ekphrasis, the critically acclaimed series of texts on art. This season, look out for books from the likes of Catherine Bernhardt, Noah Davis, and Marcel Zama, as well as new additions to the beloved Ekphrasis series. Visit davidswernerbooks.com to learn more. From David Zwerner, this is Dialogues, a podcast about artists and the way they think. And I, I love the idea in the, in the first page, and it says, tell me about the complicated man, tell you about the things that he's experienced in life and how things you have to face, the things that you try to work out. I was drawn to it because I thought maybe I might be able to get to journey into myself. I'm Lucas Werner, and every episode features a conversation. We're taking artists, writers, philosophers, designers, and musicians, and putting them in conversation with each other to explore what it means to make things today. This episode's pairing, the artist Chris Ophelia and the translator and scholar, Emily Wilson. Chris is one of the most influential painters working today. He's won a Turner Prize, and some years ago he moved to Trinidad, and the setting of Trinidad has really informed uh, the way his work has developed, and has set the stage for a new body of work based on Homer's Odyssey. Chris wanted to show that body of work uptown in our gallery on 69th Street in New York, but he also wanted to have a live event in the space. When I asked him who he wanted to be in conversation with, he immediately said Emily Wilson. Emily is a scholar, and she's also the first woman to have published an English-language translation of the Odyssey. That translation formed the basis for this new body of work of Chris's, so we brought them together at our Uptown Gallery for a live reading and conversation. So I figured that I should start by reading the Calypso episode, because it seems as if so many of these images seem in some way or other to be engaged with the encounter between the goddess Calypso and Odysseus. So Zeus says... Dear Hermes, you are my messenger. Go tell the goddess our fixed intention, that Odysseus must go back home. He has endured enough. Without a god or human as his guide, he will drift miserably for 20 days upon a makeshift raft, and then arrive at fertile Scaria. The magical Phaeacians will respect him like a god and send him in a ship to his dear homeland. I think the first thing I, I just want, need to ask, want to ask Chris, is how you came across this translation. First page. First page. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> actually it's true. I, I was in um, London, then I went to Munich to visit um, Okui, who's passed now. And we spent the day with him in his apartment. And um, Okui is a curator. Art curator, who's from Nigeria and um, worked for many years in New York. Um, very learned, very interesting, very charming kind of guy and the type of guy that you can spend a day with. <clears throat> but I've never spent a day with him because I never felt that I could match his wealth of knowledge. But anyway, we, he cooked and um, we decided to um, delay the flight to later on in the day. And then he said that he, um, did I mind if he read? And he took out that book. And I was quite chilled because a few weeks earlier, I'd been in New York and I'd been at the bookshop uh, near the gallery, actually one night, two books, which is a nice small bookshop. And they, um, the nice thing about 
buying books in the bookshop is that you can get a recommendation from a person rather than the computer. And, and they said, um, I said, I'm looking for something to read for the summer. And they said, what kind of books do you like? And I said, I quite like books that are written in the first person. <laughs> and, and, right? and, and they said, well, you should, you should read this. It's, it's the Odyssey. <laughs> and I was like, I'm not reading the Odyssey. I'm not reading the Odyssey. That's like, you know, yeah. well, very yeah. difficult mm -hmm. to read and um, quite a challenge. And I remember trying to read it as a um, teenager and just thinking this is, um, the language is so tricky. And that it's almost like you have to learn the language in order to truly um, get into the, the, the story and then get into deeper meanings. And anyway, um, I didn't buy the book. <laughs> and I think I bought some kind of Japanese poetry book or something like that instead. And Okui um, opened the first page and started reading and I just thought this is the most um, enchanting first page of a, of a book that I'd ever had read to me and um, I was completely um, hooked and chilled and at the end of it he only read the first page you know um, uh, do you mind reading yeah. the first page yes, actually tell me about a complicated man Muse, tell me how he wandered and was lost when he had wrecked the holy town of Troy, and where he went and who he met, the pain he suffered on the sea, and how he worked to save his life and bring his men back home. He failed, and for their own mistakes they died. They ate the sun god's cattle, and the god kept them from home. Now, goddess, child of Zeus, tell the old story for our modern times. Find the beginning. And I just thought, oh my God, it's like the whole thing is, all, is already there. It's already there, yeah. In, in one. Mm -hmm. and, um, but I love the idea, it's a, a new translation, and it was almost conjuring up for you to tell it to us. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so then I bought a copy. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and started reading it uh -huh. and um, got hooked. But I also bought the um, audio book and I had it read to me at the same time as reading it. And it was read by Claire Danes, right? And um, I knew you were English, so it was quite strange hearing, it was great hearing, it, hearing a female voice, but it was odd um, knowing that it wasn't your voice. Yeah. The only other audio book that I've read before that was um, Barack Obama. Uh, okay. <laughs> Dreams of my father, I think, huh? and it's him it's reading yeah. Yeah. about his life. Yeah, and so you, you know, it's like yeah. talking to somebody on the phone. Yeah, and um, so it was interesting having it read to me at the same time as reading it, mm -hmm. and you know, with further reading, I'm not a classic scholar mm -hmm. by any stretch of the imagination, but on further reading, I know that these are meant to be a poem that's meant to be read out loud. Yeah. Uh, to an audience, like somebody's telling you a story. Mm -hmm. Before we maybe get into the work, maybe you take us through some of the decisions that guided the translation. I mean, it is very specific. You said earlier that you picked a lot of monosyllabic words, mm -hmm. 
even that first line, tell us about a, tell me about a complicated mm -hmm. man is very approachable. Doesn't feel like how you imagine the Odyssey will begin when someone tells you about the Odyssey, tell me about a complicated man. Sounds like a conversation at a bar or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, but I know that approachability wasn't really your first concern. Right, I mean, I guess one of my primary concerns was wanting to make, make a very regular metrical translation that would both have, I mean, on, on some level, approachability, if that means simplicity of syntax, because the original has this oral storytelling quality where it's, it's designed to be performed and enjoyed and listened to by audiences of people who aren't literate. I mean, obviously, throughout archaic Greece, people weren't reading Homer, they were listening to Homer. So it has that, the, the syntax is not difficult. It's sort of, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. I felt that a lot of translations were making it a lot harder than, it, than the original is. Um, I also want, I wanted to have the, a beat of, of iambic pentameter. I chose iambic pentameter. The original is all in dactylic hexameter, which is which was the normal meter for the period of, of archaic Greece. Emily, um, so I wanted to. Yeah. Can you just break that down? Because that. Okay. Yes. I, <laughs> so, well, I, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I know that you've got you've yeah. got your Othello exhibit at the same time, right? Mm. So iambic pentameter is the meter of Shakespeare. Mm. It's it's like da dum da dum da dum da dum da dum. So it's the one that we are most used to. The ones that we're, we're most used to as English speakers. I mean, whether it's, you know, Shakespeare or Robert Frost, I mean, it exists in both a conversational modern form as well as in a Shakespearean or Miltonic form. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So I wanted, to I wanted to create a language which had a rhythm and that also had something of the clarity of the original. I mean, I guess just looking at your paintings, I love how you're bringing out how it, there's a sort of clarity and a magicalness and a denseness about, it's both mysterious and clear at the same time. Mm. And in a way that, I think that was, Part of what I wanted to bring out, how there's both this layeredness and um, a, a sort of divine quality, which is hard to do without being, being archaic. Right? It's yeah, hard yeah. to sort of not say, we used to believe in the gods back in the day, but instead say, there's something magical right now that mm. could be both from 3,000 years ago and could also be now. Mm. You know? What I found interesting is that um, the stories, Odysseus tells his stories quite a few times. Yeah. And... Um, not always quite the same. Yeah. And I like the fact that you, um, when I was trying to work from it, I didn't really want to illustrate the, um, the stories. I wanted to try to be inspired by them to yeah. see if something else, another story could be created from it. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, this, the, the trumpet and the, the birds and bubbles. Birds are mentioned so many times. Yes, right. A lot of so birds, so many yes. different ways, you know. Right. Very often when Athena appears, she's first a bird or she goes off like a bird. And the yeah. divine manifestation is also is often through birds. Yeah. But then yeah. also Calypso's island is full of birds. So much yeah. the divine and the sky, it's this, these birds that come to visit humans. Yeah, yeah. they nest there, but they, they hunt outside yes. of the island. Just, yes. I just think so many um, beautiful images yeah. that I somehow conjured up... Um, a reality for me living in an island in Trinidad, but also um, trying to um, create something that wasn't really a place, just a kind of rectangular snippet of a place. Mm -hmm. it's, it's so fascinating just to sort of think about like how does how does Trinidad relate to Greece? I mean, of course, they're both, you know, island nations and these experiences of living so closely to the water. I mean, it seems like also these images are so much about. Um, beings that are part fish, part human, part mm. land, part water. Mm. And I guess the Odyssey is also interesting about that, right? About where is a space? Where is a, 
a place or a home or where do we live? We mm. can live in water as well as on land. Mm. Afterwards, Okwi read the next um, piece of writing that he wanted to read was Derek Walcott. Uh -huh. um, he didn't tell me it was Derek Walcott. He uh -huh. just started to read this passage and not complicated, but um, quite mystical the way he yeah. writes, Walcott. Yeah. And um, as he was reading, I, it was mentioned in places that I knew in Trinidad. And I stopped him and said, oh, this is Walcott. And, and he's talking about Trinidad and he's talking about places in Trinidad. And somehow then the two texts got fused together for me, Walcott and, and um, the Odyssey. And strangely, um, Walcott has done his own version, Omeros. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we talked a little bit about Walcott in advance of this conversation, oh. Chris, but did you, was that someone who was on your mind as well? Considering he did his own version of, like you said, of the Odyssey. I've, I've got a copy of, of Omeros. <laughs> And I haven't read it. I haven't read it. But Derek gave it to me many years ago in London. He did a, he did a piece of work with Isaac Julian called um, Paradise Omeros. They're both from St. Lucia. And I was at maybe an event, something like this, and that was good. And, and um, he'd signed, he signed this book. I still got this, this kind of foxed um, version. Walcott's interesting for me just because he pretty much says you can do what you want. You're not, you're not, lashed to the text like this year's to the mast you know you can really you can really move around you can take the wax out of your yes. ears yes. You, can, you can move around yes. a bit. and i painted as i was reading and i felt that it released images rather than um cast images i, I actually wasn't going to tell people that it was the work was based on the odyssey because i thought that that was going to reduce the reading of it but then um the work's turned out pretty well, so, <laughs> so I thought I could. <laughs> How much are you thinking about images when you do the translation? I mean, that's something that obviously weighs heavily on your mind as an artist as you read releasing images. And I know Derek Walcott thinks imagistically mm -hmm. as a poet, but were you yeah. sort of create, constructing images or was language really driving it in a different way. Yeah, I mean, I guess language is primary. I mean, I, and of course, I was lashed to the mast in a certain way. I mean, that's what being a translator is. But I, I definitely wanted to make sure that the material world, including the visual world, just felt as alive and as concrete as possible. I mean, I guess the, the passages I just read include the very vivid dis, um, visual description of, Circe's, of Calypso's Island. I guess both visual and auditory um, Images. I mean, that there's both the sound of the waves, the sound of storms, the sound of the of people and ships moving through space, and then also what color are things? And Homer's colors are notoriously strange. The way that so many things are shining. I mean, I, I love. This is another shout out to how wonderful these images are. But just I love how they bring out the shiningness and just how magical it can be to be in a world of glitter. Gold, gold is mentioned. Gold, gold is mentioned so, so much, much isn't it? I think I. Um, misunderstood but I thought that Penelope's um uh the the um shroud that she's weaving was of gold or had golden threads in it and I was running with that <laughs> I was running I was running with that in my mind that you know this all the way through this was this um this uh, woven shroud of gold and being unpicked and but throughout um yeah throughout it's I mean the gold the, it is gold leaf right that's yeah. in these images yeah in some it looks like the gold leaf is applied 
immediately or it's 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 yeah. thought of as going to have gold leaf and in some it almost looks like the gold is on top of what was originally a color yeah colored scales and then you add how did the gold make its way into the images i mean aside from maybe coming in through its presence in the odyssey I'm woven curious. by cersei yeah. <laughs> all of it as you were reading i got the feeling it seemed like you might have an actually a lower opinion of odysseus than maybe the rest of us do <laughs> <laughs> The, the modern idea of the hero as this, the Superman person who saves the kids from the burning building, that's a, that's a very modern idea. I mean, it's not the idea of a heros in Greek culture. In Greek culture, it, it being semi-divine or somehow more than normal human, humans doesn't necessarily mean you're morally better than anyone else. And I, I don't see any reason to think the poem thinks Odysseus is a good person or that he's fun to be mm. married to or that he's you know, mm. an honest and he has so much integrity. And obviously he doesn't, right? Mm. I mean, it, it may be that we don't mind about integrity and that, you know, maybe we care more about survival. And he's very good at telling interesting lies and surviving. surviving yes. I think it's laid out in that first page. He's yes. a complicated man, isn't he? And um, I think it's it's funny reading it and seeing that he's really okay about being a liar. He's okay mm -hmm. about being, you know, right. just, you know, sacrificing men in order to survive. He's okay about um, making it seem that he's pissed off at hanging out with Calypso when he might not be, yeah. you know? And that's what I was trying to explore yes. a little bit yeah, in, yes, in these yes, works. Yes. Like, hang on a minute, yes. hang on a minute. She's really, really nice. Yes. And she's Her really island's to make amazing. Him immortal, and she's incredibly beautiful. Yeah, and she's incredible it's really place. hard to get there. You know, nobody's going to interrupt <laughs> no them. You know, and when they somebody finally arrives, he's like on the beach, going, "Oh, I really don't like being here." <laughs> My feeling is that he um, maybe is doesn't like being still. I think he's. A, I think yeah. he's a he's a traveler by nature, and I think he likes adventure and wants to to go on and I think maybe um, that's hard for him really I think he likes to, the idea of being immortal that there's risk involved one thing we talked about and would love to hear more about it is of course being the first woman who's translated the Odyssey um, people impute to you all sorts of things intentions I would imagine and make assumptions and assume things you're trying to highlight certain things about gender dynamics certainly when I look at some of these works, there's a sort of empowered femininity. And even, and I'm part of my reader, I was reading that into the works and of course sort of suggesting that maybe that was coming from this mm -hmm. translation by a woman who's empowering female characters. But mm -hmm. of course that needn't be the case. And right. I'm just curious how you've navigated some of those right. conversations around that. Right. Um, so I've, there have been other women Homerists and there have certainly been other women translators of, of, of the Odyssey as well into other languages. I'm, I'm, as far as I know, the first woman to publish a translation in English. And of course, that doesn't mean I'm the first woman to have studied the poem sure. or to have translated the poem. Um, but yours is you know. the best. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so, Thank you. okay. Yes. I mean, I, I'm interested in gender. I'm interested in the representation of, you know, social class in general in the, in the poem, which includes gender, but it doesn't just include gender. Um, I mean, I definitely was... It's not my default assumption that female characters are less interesting than male characters. And I think that is a default assumption for some readers, including quite a lot of male readers, not all male readers. Um, I, I feel like the empowering women is sort of a problematic idea because, of course, there were plenty of 
female characters in this poem who don't have any power. I mean, the, the slave characters, both male and female, it's not like I can suddenly say, let me just go in there and pretend that the slaves have lots of power when I don't think they actually do. But the choice of, the choice of naming them slaves already yeah. denotes that they have less power. It's a way of just making something visible rather than making it less visible. I mean, I think there's, there's always choices about where, where do you shine light? I mean, where do you, what do you make clear? What do you make less clear? What kinds of obscurity do you not want? Hmm. Um, I, mean, I, don't, I don't feel that I had to work very hard to see that there are a lot of very powerful female characters. I mean, we've been talking about the power of Calypso, the, um, the whole poem, the whole plot is engineered Athena. by Athena. Athena, yeah. Athena is the one yeah. who really engineers everything that happens in, in the Odyssey. Mm. I mean, I guess we could, uh, we could argue about to what extent is she fully identified as female. I mean, she's on some level non-binary. I mean, she keeps, she, when she manifests as, as human, she usually manifests as a man, though occasionally as a woman. Um, there are, the poem itself seems really interested, I think, in the range of different ways that you can be either male or female. It's not just one thing that femininity would mean. You know? And I think that's part of why it's so fascinating, is it's not sort of saying there's one little box that we can put female into and then everything else is this whole range of other human experience which doesn't include female. Mm -hmm. It's not like that. There's a, there's a whole range of experience that covers, you know, fall away from divine to enslaved, which is female. I mean, that's what's amazing, I think, about this um, transformation in the works, that yeah. the characters begin to resemble one another. In that that's what, yeah. That yes. there's this, uh, you don't know who's male or female, there's a sort of ambiguity. Yeah. I was honestly trying to represent Athena in the, in the golden yeah. figure, the fact that she can transform into yeah. different uh, forms. But I did wonder how many different forms, I, I started trying to count at one point, but stopped, how many different forms she assumes to be um, the poem? There are many, many forms. I mean, I guess in book 13, when Odysseus and Athena have their conversation and she's, she's explaining that she's so much better at tricks and lies and disguises than he is. And he, he think he's boasting about how great he is at lying and she's even better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's funny because he likes to say that he's, he's clever because he's become something else and he's tricked. She just does it. Yes. <laughs> right? the, the, there's this musical art form in Trinidad, um, well, type of music um, genre called Calypso Music. And I, that was the other reason why. And um, it's not, um, I don't think it derives from this, but I think it could. Right? When you look it up, it makes no mention of Homer. And you're just like, no. I was fishing for a subject and I thought that maybe it was being handed to me on a plate, this connection between Trinidad and this incredible poem and it turns out that it wasn't really but I had to kind of stitch it in myself and I'm 51 in, in, in October right and I see life a little different to how I did when I was 21 and I, lo I love the idea in the, in the first page and it says tell me about the complicated man they tell you about the things that he's experienced in life and how, um, you know, the things you have to face, the things that you um, try to work out. Um, and I was drawn to it because I thought maybe I might be able to get to journey into myself through the process of reading about a man and his experiences. And I think the, the book is, uh, the poem is wonderful because it's, um, it's just somebody journeying, really, and going round and round. And sometimes you feel as though 
you're going around in circles when actually you're um, spiraling. You might actually be climbing and gaining a bit more altitude um, rather than staying um, in the same in the same place. Um, so, um, book five, I think, allowed me to um, apparently stay in one place, but I think spiral around the idea of of being entrapped and um, being liberated simultaneously, and uh, truth and lies. Thank you. Thank you. Dialogues is produced by David Zwerner. You can find out more about the artists on this series by going to davidswerner.com slash dialogues. And if you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help other people discover the show. I'm Lucas Werner. Thanks so much for listening. And I hope you join us again next time.